Um, we, uh, as I dismiss, the kids can be dismissed at this time. I want to just uh, remind you in the bulletin, there's a blurb, but the Evens are having an open house for Anthony this weekend. And so uh, take note of the details there in your bulletin, and, and you all are invited to that. Uh, John chapter 20, as they go, the children are dismissed. They're so grateful for uh, Evans teaching them. Our interns will be here next Sunday, so uh, you, they'll be preaching for us next Sunday night. So be exciting uh, time to have them serving with us for a while, be praying about those things there. There are two types of people in the world, those who see the glass half full and those who see the glass half empty. You know the type, a person who looks both ways before they cross a one-way street, always seeing the downside. Uh, the, I'm talking about the pessimist. His blood type is B negative. Come on now, it's not going to get any better than that. Just humor me, humor me. There's a lot of pessimism in our world today. And in fact, <laughs> there's plenty of reason for it. Amen. You don't have to watch the news very long uh, to, to get some negativity in your life. There's plenty to go around. You find pessimism everywhere you look if you are looking for it. I thought about this this week. Whoever decided to call our armaments missiles? Missiles. I want to hit things, not miss things. And yet, uh, that's a kind of a pessimistic name. But uh, you find pessimism wherever you look. Do you remember watching maybe as a child or with your children... Eeyore the donkey with uh, Winnie the Pooh. Uh, he was the picture of pessimism. Always seeing the downside, never the upside. Always complaining about something. He lived in a magical forest surrounded by friends who loved him and supported him. And he was still depressed. Eeyore, actually this morning, I kind of brought him with me uh, just so that we can get a visual, okay? Eeyore. When uh, Winnie the Pooh says, good morning, Eeyore, if it is a good morning, which I doubt, I remember, I remember he had a problem with his tail. He would lose his tail, and Christopher Robin uh, pegged it back on, and he says, no matter, I'll probably lose it again anyway. Pessimism. That's the type of attitude he had. And they were infinitely patient with him, but... Nobody really likes to be around a pessimist. A pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist sees an opportunity in every difficulty. Pessimism is a wrong way to look at things. In fact, a pessimist can't wait for the future so he can look back with regret. That's, how, that's a pessimist for you. And we've been looking in our series at Friends with Jesus, and boy, I don't know about you, but I've been learning a lot about the close friends Jesus had. And uh, the ones that he spent the most time with. And, and today I want to look at one that is not the best known, but not the worst known uh, friend of Jesus. I'm talking today about a man who I think was a pessimist. We're going to talk about Thomas. He's usually called Doubting Thomas. In fact, that name has even leaked into pop culture. If you have a business situation and someone is uh, hesitant about getting on board or, or in a similar situation, they might call him a Doubting Thomas. There's even a song of that title by Nickel Creek. It's been in our popular culture for some time, Doubting Thomas. Thomas has went down in history for being a doubter, but I don't think that's really the appropriate term for him or the best label for him. 
He's a better man, I believe, than popular opinion would dictate. He was a somewhat negative person, though. He was a worrywart, an overthinker, overanxious. Anybody identify with those feelings today? I think many of us do. He was like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. He anticipated the worst all the time. I believe that pessimism, more than doubt, characterized his life. And I'd like to show you some things from Scripture uh, to get into that as we look today at the friend of Jesus, Thomas. Read along with me in John chapter 20. We're going to start at verse number 20. John 20, 20. And when he had so said, he showed them his hands and his side. They were, then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. The setting here is when Jesus shows himself to the disciples after the resurrection for the first time. Then they were glad uh, when they saw the Lord. Um, verse 24, but Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. And then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy Finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Looking today at Thomas, Father, I pray you'd help us as we see in a life today, no doubt will reflect many of our lives and issues and problems. May we learn from him, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thomas in John eleven sixteen was also called Didymus, as he was here, which means twin. Uh, in fact, Thomas is an Aramaic name, and Didymus is a Greek name, and both of them mean twin. So obviously, Thomas had a twin brother or a twin sister. The Bible never gives us any details about that person, but uh, we know nothing about his prior life. We don't know what he did for a career before Jesus called him. We don't know the circumstances of his call. Now, we know that after the resurrection, he did go fishing with Peter and some of the others, and so possibly he was a fisherman before. But uh, Thomas is only mentioned once in each of the three synoptic gospels. Uh, they all, and that's every time they list him is just when he's listed with the twelve. Nothing about him. No details about him were given by Matthew, Mark, or Luke. We learn everything that we know about Thomas from the Gospel of John. And when we read about Thomas in John, it doesn't take us long to surmise that he tended to look at the glass half empty. Uh, he always seemed to anticipate the worst in everything. Yet despite his pessimism, uh, some wonderful characteristics are revealed about Thomas. And I don't want us to miss those as we look at this man. I want to see, first of all, something about Thomas that he was committed. And each one of these points, we're going to look at different passages. So if you want to turn with me, and then it will end up here in John chapter 20. But uh, in John 11, we find his uh, the first mention of Thomas. And it's just one little verse, but it speaks volumes. 
To set the scene, uh, Jesus had left Jerusalem because that his life was in danger there. It was actually in great danger of, uh, danger of death. In chapter 10, verse 40, And they went away again beyond Jordan to a place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. And when he did, great crowds of people gathered there to hear Jesus preach. And John says in verse 42 uh, that many believed on him there. People were responding. Souls were being converted and saved, and, and he, Jesus was making a great impact there. And while he was able to preach there freely without the, uh, the religious leaders getting in his way, while all this was going on, there was an interruption. A messenger came from Bethany. Uh, this is a little town about two miles outside of Jerusalem. His friend Lazarus was very ill. And this was a family that Jesus dearly loved. And Mary and Martha, his sister, sent word to Jesus that if you come quickly, you'll be able to heal him. And this posed a big problem. Because if Jesus went to Bethany, this would put him very close to Jerusalem. No doubt they were here, he was there, and they could come and take him there. Uh, John 10.39 says that the Jewish leaders were determined to kill him. But boy, were they ever relieved when Jesus said, uh, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. Now, Jesus knew that Lazarus would die, and uh, he would raise him from the dead, but the disciples didn't get this at this time. So he stayed two more days, literally, while Lazarus was dying. And then in verse 7, Then after that saith he to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples thought this was a terrible idea. And verse number 8 says, Master, the Jews of late sought to kill thee, and goest thou thither again? Now was not the time to go to Bethany or close to Jerusalem. But Jesus said in verse number 11, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I might wake him out of sleep. And the disciples misunderstood once again. Well, that's a good sign. He's sleeping. He must be on the mend. But Jesus in verse 11, Our friend Lazarus uh, I'm sorry, in the next verse he says, No, no, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. Now, I want you to think about that statement just for a second. This is not the message, this is free. But Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. Think about that statement. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. That's a, again, there's a whole message there, but uh, how many times in your life has something happened and you say, oh, my soul, that's terrible. And God from heaven is looking down. This is wonderful. And the difference is he sees what he's about to do in your life through the problem that you're so concerned about. Whew, that's good stuff, isn't it? Lazarus is dead and I am glad. Now, they understood here, the disciples, that Jesus had to go back. There's nothing they could do about it. This would have filled them with fear. It would have convinced them that all of them were in danger. And it was at this point that Thomas spoke up. He speaks for the first time in the gospel record here in John 11 and verse number 16. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples. Oh, actually. Then said Thomas, let us go that we may die with him. See the pessimism there? He could have said, hey guys, let's go. Maybe it'll be fine. God's in control. Maybe everything will be all right. But the pessimist says he's going to die and we're going to go die with him. But you look at this and though this is pessimism, it's pretty heroic, isn't it? 
Because it's uh, Thomas had the courage to be loyal even in the face of his pessimism. Can I tell you, it's much easier for an optimist to be loyal. They think the best of everything. They think good things will happen. An optimist expects his dreams to come true, while a pessimist expects his nightmares to come true. But it's something wonderful to be said of Thomas that even though he thought, was convinced, the worst is going to happen, even though he said, we are going to die if we go, but I'll still go with you, Jesus. Let's still go with him because going with Jesus and dying with him is better than staying here and being safe without him. Whew, that's some commitment there. Thomas was extremely devoted to Christ. When you think about someone who is close to Jesus, who do you think about? If somebody said, who is, in fact, we talked about him last week, John. John, the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Of course, John's the only one that ever said that, but uh, his point still remains. Uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and, and he was the one laying on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. We think of John, but i got to say, I think Thomas is pretty committed to Jesus too. I think Thomas ready to lay down life and limb uh, because he didn't want to be apart from Jesus. And he basically is saying here, come on men, better to die with Jesus than to be safe without him. And I say, wow, that's a great attitude. And he was an example to the others here. In fact, Thomas was a leader and it seems everyone followed because the next thing we see, they're all in Bethany together. You could say that Thomas made an impact. Oh, for more people like Thomas. Today, it doesn't take much to separate people from Christ. A little hardship, a little adversity. I didn't sign up for this. Some financial difficulty or family tragedy makes people quit on God. What does it take you to make you quit? That's the real measure of a man. Not so much what he accomplishes as what it takes to make him quit. What does it take to make you quit? I read a story about Ignacy Jan Paderewski. He was a pianist scheduled to perform at a big concert hall here in America. It was a high society extravaganza. But present in the audience was a mother and a fidgety nine-year-old boy was with her. And as the mother turned to talk to some friends, he did what little boys do. He escaped. He slipped away. And he ends up running up to the platform, sitting down at the Steinway piano that Paderewski was going to be playing in a few minutes. And as he sits down on the piano, he starts to play that little ditty, Chopsticks, playing on this grand national stage. As soon as this happened, the crowd hushed, obviously shocked, and, and uh, cries of, who's that child? Get that kid away from there. Where's his mother? rang out. The composer backstage heard the ruckus and he went around to see what was going on and he saw what was happening and this boy was playing and he goes around, uh, puts his arms around uh, the boy and reaches uh, down and he starts to play a counter melody uh, to, uh, me to melodize with the boy, whatever the word is, okay? I was homeschooled. I don't have good words. Yes, harmonize. Thank you. So to enhance the chopstick, and he kept on whispering, don't stop, keep on playing, keep playing, keep playing, keep playing. And while he adds his mix, and it, what, it turned a simple little uh, song of chopsticks into a wonderful piece. That's how our Christian life is too. We don't impress anyone with our game of chopsticks, playing uh, this by ourselves. That doesn't do anything for anybody. 
But sometimes the master will come in and through your circumstances and through your troubles and through your trials, when you're just trying to do the best you can, and he will uh, start to make music with us. And he will tell you the same thing. Don't quit. Keep going. Keep going. Don't stop. And disappointment turns into victories when the master steps in and begins to play the counter melody in your life. Difficulty may make many a man quit, but not Thomas. Thomas had a deep devotion to Christ. He couldn't, it could not be dampened even by his own pessimism. He had no illusion about what following Jesus would cost him, and yet he followed Jesus anyway. This is real commitment, and it's hard to find real commitment. You ever hear of the Nielsen ratings for television? Uh, the Nielsen ratings are an audience measurement system. Basically, it's to see what people watch, how long they watch it. It was developed by Robert Eldra and Lewis Woodruff. An interesting thing about the Nielsen, when they, there's about 42,000 families involved in this currently. And it's interesting that when they install, uh, whatever tracking or get your agreement to sign up for this, when you sign up to be in that family of the Nielsen rating, they don't pay any attention to what you do for three months. Because they know people like to impress. We're smarter at this household. So we'll watch National Geographic. We'll watch the Science Channel if there is such a thing. And uh, then after about three months, everybody goes back to watching the Kardashians or whatever. Uh, and uh, go back to their habits. So they don't even pay attention to what happens in the beginning. But, but it's interesting that even the Nielsen people know that there's commitments. Pretty rare thing. It's not, it's pretty rare for a person to stay by their commitments. It's easy to do good for a while, but we're lacking today men and women with real commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Thomas here considered it better to die with his Savior than to run from his Savior. And we need more people like that even today. Hallelujah for Thomas. He was committed. Number two, I'd like you to see Thomas was devoted. And here we're going to go to John 14. Jesus is talking about how he would soon no longer be with him and, and uh, with the disciples, I should say. And it was a sad conversation and one that was really worrisome for all of them. And Jesus says, I'm going away. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again. And then in verse 4, Jesus says, And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. And then there's Thomas. Don't you love when you're in class and there's a kid always raises his hand? So Jesus said, and whither you go, you know, and, and uh, Thomas, what question, and so Jesus, probably used to it, okay, yes, you in the back. And Thomas says, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Thomas is basically saying, you're leaving, what... You're leaving? We don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. And if you go, how will we ever find you? Thomas was not a man to pretend to have faith he didn't have. And we can thank Thomas for his question, by the way, because it led to one of the great I am statements of Jesus in the Bible. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas is a man with the kind of relationship with Christ so strong that he never wanted to be apart from Him. The thought of losing Christ absolutely shattered him. He was willing to die with Jesus rather than to be separated from Him. And you have to admire that type of devotion. And then the worst thing happened. His nightmare came true. Remember, to a pessimist, 
he expects his nightmare to come true to an optimist to expect their dreams to come true. Thomas' nightmare came true. Jesus died, and he didn't. He was separated from his Savior. And this brings us to the text that we read in the beginning, back to John chapter 20, and here we see how finally Thomas was established. Uh, the setting is the upper room. Ten of the disciples are there. Of course, Judas is dead, and Thomas was, we don't know where. Where was Thomas? He was not there. That's all it says. I don't know where he was, but I do know that when God's people meet, you ought to be there. Amen? Uh, I, an absence from church is a vote to close its doors. You ought to be in God's house with God's people when the doors are open. I believe with all my heart that it takes three to thrive, and you'll never reach your potential for Christ unless you're involved in the house of God in the, in the local church. I heard about a husband and his wife got up on Sunday morning uh, to get uh, ready for church, and the wife was getting dressed, but she noticed her husband wasn't getting dressed for church, and confused, she asked him, why aren't you getting ready for church? He says, I'm not going. What do you mean you're not going? We always go to church. I'm not going. I don't want to go. He says, I don't want to go, and there's three reasons for it. The, the people there are rude, nobody there likes me, and I just don't want to go. And she said, you have to go. He says, I don't want to go. She says, well, you have to go, and you're going to go, and I'll give you three reasons why. She said, first of all, not all the people there are rude. Some of the people there like you. And thirdly, you're the pastor. You have to get up and go to church, okay? But whatever reason there is for skipping, it's not good enough. They were all there to encourage one another. They had just heard word that Mary had seen Jesus after the resurrection and they're there and, and uh, they're there to lift each other except for Thomas. John 20 and 24 says, but Thomas was not with them. It's too bad he wasn't there because Jesus showed up in person. He said, Jesus said to them, peace be unto you. And then he showed them his hands and he showed them his side. And you know what the Bible says here? Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Of course they were. But Thomas wasn't there. And notice what he missed. Verse 19, he missed the presence of the Lord. He missed the power of the Lord. He missed the peace of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. Verse 21, he missed the promotions of the Lord. Verse 22, he missed the provisions of the Lord. I tell you, friend, when you miss out on a church service, you miss out. And so did Thomas here. Whatever Thomas was or wherever he was, he was no doubt devastated. His whole world had been turned upside down. Jesus was gone. His reason for living was gone. Thomas probably felt alone, rejected, betrayed, and he was not in a mood to socialize. He certainly didn't want to be around people at this time, and so he wasn't there. And he was, by the way, when you separate yourself uh, from God's people, friend, often in your solitude you only deepen your depression. Isolation can be a breeding ground for negative thoughts. We all have living within us that inner critic that is always ready to get inside our heads and to bring us down. In this sense, we can often be our own worst enemy. And Thomas separated himself from his friends when he needed them most. The worst solitude is to be destitute of sincere friendship. Now later in verse 25, they did get together. And the disciples came to Thomas and eagerly they said uh, to him, We have seen the Lord. They were excited. Of course they were eager to share the good news with Thomas. But Thomas was still being a hopeless pessimist. All he could see was the bad side. And this was just too good to be true. So look what he says. 
look what he says in verse, um, verse 25. Then the other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said... In, oh, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my arm or my hand into his side, I will not believe. It's because of this statement he's called Doubting Thomas. But it's interesting because before we beat up on Thomas, may I remind you that the other disciples didn't believe either. In Mark 16, Mary Magdalene, she saw the Lord Jesus showed himself to Mary Magdalene. And she was all excited and ran to tell the disciples, and she told them, I've seen the Lord. And verse number 11 of Mark 16, and when they heard that he was alive and they had been seen of her, believed not. They didn't believe either. Why don't we say doubting Peter? Why don't we say doubting John? They doubted just like Thomas doubted. And by the way, do you know what Jesus did when he first showed himself to them? He showed them his hands. He showed them his side, exactly what Thomas is asking for. He's really no different than the others were. Somehow we've tagged him with this, this nickname, Doubting Thomas. He, uh, for eight days now pass here, eight long days. They gathered again, and this time Eeyore's with them. And Jesus shows up again. And uh, look what he says. Notice who he zeroed in on in verse 27. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. Jesus was gentle with him. Thomas had made a mistake because he was a pessimist. But it was a mistake, I believe, that came out of a deep love for Jesus. His hesitation here did not come from his character so much as it came from his grief. No one can feel the way Thomas was until they love the way that Thomas loved. So Jesus was tender with it. Oh, I'm so glad Jesus understands our weaknesses. I'm glad for Hebrews 4.15 that tells us we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He, he understands our doubt. He's even patient with our pessimism. While we recognize Thomas's weakness, friends, listen, we have to also acknowledge Thomas's devotion. The proof of his love is seen in the profoundness of his despair. Did he fail? Yes, he failed. He had a lapse in faith. And guess what? You'll fail too, and so will I. We all fail. And I'm glad that when we do, Jesus is there to reinforce our faith. By the way, I'm glad that my nickname hasn't come from my failures. Aren't you? A lot of us would probably have a lot worse nicknames than Doubting Thomas. William Hazlitt said a nickname is the heaviest stone that, a devil, that the devil can throw at a man. We have cast such a stone at Thomas, and I think unfairly. And I also say Jesus never did. Don't let your mistakes and your failures define you. Like I told my wife, embrace your mistakes. And she ran and gave me a hug. I don't know what that was all about. but <laughs> We don't need to let our mistakes define our future. Our past does not have to tell us what we will do tomorrow. Notice what's missing in this text, by the way. Jesus said, reach hither my finger and behold my hands. Did Thomas do so? He did not. 
He did not walk up and touch it. He said, unless I put my finger in the nails of the holes of his hand, unless I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. But he didn't do so. Because when, G- when Thomas show- or Jesus showed up there, we see that Thomas had momentary doubt, but he did not have unbelief in his life. And there's a big difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is a problem of the intellect. That is, a person wants to believe, but he has questions. Unbelief is a problem of the heart. Unbelief will not believe no matter how much proof that it sees. And so Thomas did not need to touch Jesus. Seeing him was enough. And when Jesus showed up, what a wonderful thing. Thomas gave one of the greatest confessions in the Bible, my Lord and my God. He immediately calls Jesus both Lord and God, and then he personalizes it by calling him my Lord and God. All of his hesitations are now settled. Thomas receives what the disciples had gotten eight days before. All the blessings of knowing that Jesus is alive. And when he saw Jesus, Thomas's negative, pessimistic tendencies no longer rule him. In that moment, he is transformed into a great evangelist. History tells us that uh, Thomas took the gospel as far as India. There's a small hill near the airport at Chennai, India today that is where they say Thomas is uh, to be bar- was buried at. There are churches in South India right now, I read several sources, that right today are meeting that can trace their roots back to Thomas's ministry. Tradition says he was martyred for the faith by being run through with a spear. And if you think about it, how fitting it is that Thomas's doubts were forever settled when he saw the spear marks in his Savior's side. And on the day of his death, Thomas finally got his wish to be reunited forever with his Savior. That's the story of Jesus' friend Thomas. I wonder if there's someone here today, you've been plagued by pessimism yourself. It's hard for you to see the glass half full, always expecting the worst from life. A relationship with God will help you resolve those feelings. The Lord makes all the difference. Because you see, the optimist says the cup is half full. The pessimist says the cup is half empty. The child of God says, my cup runneth over. Amen? That's what God can do for you. To answer, the answer for us is to come to terms with the risen Christ and to exclaim along with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Is he yours today? Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed, if you would. Let me ask you that question this morning. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's going to 